This talk is given by Vanessa Zvise Goddard, a writer and lay Zen teacher based in New York City. This talk, like all of Zvise's talks, is offered freely. If you'd like to make a donation, find out more about Zvise's teachings, or sign up for her newsletter, please visit her website at vanessasvisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. May the merits of these teachings benefit all beings. May these words help and not harm. May they clarify and not confuse. May they self-liberate, leaving no trace of me. There is a faith in loving fiercely, the one who is rightfully yours, especially if you have waited years, and especially if part of you never believed you could deserve this, loved and beckoning hand held out to you in this way. This is David White in his stunning poem, The True Love. True love is one word here. And he is uh, part British, part Irish, now part American, a poet, a Zen practitioner, and I would say a prophet. And this this poem, this part of this poem is from The Sea in You. 20 poems of requited and unrequited love. And you could read it as a poem about romantic love. But I really wanted to offer it as a poem about love for life, love for self particularly the self that we're capable of being, the one who is rightfully yours and mine. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and I should say I have made it a practice, the art of conversation. I think I, I got a little bit spoiled when I was living at the monastery because conversations tended to be um, heartful, right? They tended to, to get to the core of things. Not always, not always, but in general. Right, people who came to the monastery wanted to know, wanted to understand, wanted to wake up to their lives. And so you would sit down in the dining hall to have, you know, a, a, what otherwise would be a casual conversation, often with a complete stranger. They just got off the bus, they just drove in for the first time and are trying to figure out what it even means to be in a monastery. And over soup and salad, often you would get to truly meet another and you would hear sometimes very intimate, 
very intimate things about their lives, about them. And you could tell now and then that even they were surprised. How could this have happened so quickly? And so I think I did get a bit spoiled because then I left the monastery and it was harder. It was harder to find people who were willing, who when you asked, how are you, would actually tell you. And when they asked you, actually wanted to know. And the people who really are not interested in talking about the weather. Many years ago, I thought, I guess that's the sign of becoming an adult. Once you start talking about the weather, <laughs> that means you've just grown up and now you don't have anything interesting to say. And so here I've made it part of my business to look for, to find, and to cultivate those people, those relationships who are willing to go there with me. And I have found, I have found a few. And so, so a good friend, a new friend, whom I, I consider a, a, a good friend in this sense, was asking me the other night, you know, what is it all for? What, what's the purpose, right, of life? What's, the, what's its meaning? All of this work, all of this striving. And she works a lot and likes her work, loves her work. But what is it all for? And I didn't say this because I didn't have the right words at the time. I, I said something similar, but, but reading this poem, I wish I had said to meet the one who is rightfully ours, who's rightfully yours. And who do you think that is? To, to, to bring that being into the world, to gift the world with that being, with that fierce love. I think that's what we're here to do. And for some reason, I was reminded of that story of the prodigal child in the Lotus Sutra. They set out on their own, as they must. You know, the, the, the story, the way it's told, particularly in the Christian tradition, is that the, the son, because it's, it's, it's a, a guy, leaves the father and squanders their fortune. But I was thinking about it a little bit differently. I was thinking about it as the child leaving the parent as they must, right? When they're, when they're ready, when it's time for them to step out into the world, to become their own person. And the trouble that they run into as they do this, as they're figuring themselves out. 
And in the Lotus Sutra, the, the, the child doesn't want to ask for help. And so they're just wandering the land and becoming impoverished. And there is this, this sense, again, the way the story is told of, of getting lost, right? Of, of being separated from that parental figure and that that is somehow that leaves you bereft. And I was thinking, no, but again, you know, that is just a necessary step in our development. We have all done this. And those of you who are parents will, or if, if you haven't already, will see that you know, with your own children. And at the same time, right, we want to grow up. We want to have that independence. You remember being a child and thinking, I can't wait until I can stay up all night. And now I'm an adult and it's like, I go to bed at nine o'clock or 10 o'clock. <laughs> I can't wait to have that, that freedom. And then you get it and you think, oh, but I, I just, can we go back? I really want somebody to take care of me again. Those, those, those times, I certainly have had them not that long ago. I think I just want, I just want my mommy. Right? I just want daddy to tell me that I'm loved, to, to, help, to tell me that it's going to be okay. And I don't know if I've made this up, but it's such a clear image in my mind that the earliest memory that I have is being in the bath and my father holding me. And I have a, a crystal clear image of his finger drawing figure eights on the green tile, the green shower tile, the wall. But the feeling in my body when I evoke that image is one of being held and being loved unconditionally. He was my world, my father, for a long time. And I recognize now as an adult, those moments in which I want that again. Again, that reassurance, that closeness. And, you know, maybe for some of us, it was not a, a father or not a parent. Maybe it was an aunt or a grandmother or a close family friend. But somebody, somebody who had our back. And of course, you know, becoming an adult, we can only do that ourselves. But I think especially in our culture with this very strong message that you should do it on your own, that you should figure it out by yourself as if that were possible. It, it cuts out, it negates that need that I think all of us have in one form or another to be held, to, to be, to be held. Like 
Pema Chodron saying to her friend, stay, stay. And so in the story, the child leaves home, which could also be understood as, as in a confusing sense, those times in which we leave ourselves. You know, the, the years, the decades, perhaps, where we're trying to figure out who we are. And we are trying to figure out what all of this means. And maybe we're really good at doing the thing. We work really hard and we have a good job. And we find the right, the good enough partner for us. But the story says, you know, the, the child comes upon hard times. And I was thinking, what if that doesn't mean that they're poor in, ter in terms of wealth, but that they can't find themselves? I can't tell you how many women I know who in the midst of all that work and marriage and raising kids get to a point where they're like, what, who am I? in the middle of doing all the things that they're supposed to do, of checking every box and doing it extremely well, getting to a point where they wonder, but who am I? Another good friend who went through exactly that. She excelled at being a mother. She excelled at providing for her children for her partner while she had a partner. Eventually they separated. And realizing one day she had no idea who she was or what she wanted. She was 44 and she got so freaked out that she went up to her office, looked up inpatient um, psychiatric wards and called her insurance and said, I need to check myself into one of these. And the woman says, well, are you hearing any voices? She's like, well, not any more than the usual ones. Are you thinking of harming yourself? No. Are you thinking of harming another? No. Well, ma'am, so what's the problem? And she says, I'm 44 years old and I don't know who I am. And she says she thinks the woman chuckled. She's not sure, but she remembers <laughs> the woman chuckling and saying, ma'am, I don't think an inpatient places is the right place for you. I can give you a list of therapists. And she says she remembers the frustration, the catch 22 that she found herself in because she felt as if she was going crazy. But if you know that you're going crazy, that proves that you're not crazy, right? And she was, but what I felt, my desperation was real. Because I, I would look at my hand and I thought, okay, I'm mother, sister, wife, worker, you know, all of these things. And at the center of that, who is this person? And she could not give an answer. So you know what she did? She went on Google. No, before she sat down 
and had this vision, she said, of sweeping the forest floor. And she said to herself, if I can be in the presence of a monk, sweeping the forest floor, the forest floor and if they ask me something esoteric, like how many stars are in a leaf, then I can figure myself out, I think. She, can't, she doesn't remember what her search was, but what came up was a Thai monastery that makes our monastery look like the Ritz. It was that rustic. I mean, they didn't even have walls. The meditation hall was a thatched roof. And she went for 10 days and her entire life changed because she came back after a week of silence, after a week of being with herself, sweeping, she got in fact to sweep the forest floor and she realized everything that I've done, I don't need. And if I died tomorrow, I will forever feel like I betrayed myself because I was not put on this earth just to work. So she sold everything she had, the cars, the designer clothes, she said. She, she kept two suitcases and then began traveling around the world. She could do that. She has the means to do that. So there is that. But she decided that she was not willing to give up herself in order to do what was expected of her. And her kids are now grown, and so she had that freedom. I am thinking of faith now and the testaments of loneliness and what we feel we are worthy of in this world. That's white again. And what are we worthy of truly? What do you think you're worthy of truly? Because we come to a tradition that promises liberation. Do we actually think that that's something that we can achieve, that we can have? Do we think that we can actually be happy in this life? That we can have love, that we can have protection? Are we worthy of not spending so much time wondering whether we're worthy or not? And I'm not sure, gentlemen, if this is something that you, that you um, go through. I think for, for us women, it's, it's common, and maybe not exactly in those words. But in, the, in wondering, what is wrong with me? That I can't dot, 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 or that I still feel dot, dot, dot that I don't want, dot, dot, dot. What is wrong with me? What if nothing is wrong with you? I've had people say to me, I'm afraid that others will find me out 
that they'll realize that I'm not who I say I am, who I appear to be. And I always want to say, well, then who are you? Who would you be if you did not have to pretend? And I think this is the part in the sutra where if you remember the, the prodigal child is shoveling shit in the stables. So the father has found their child and approached them as they could be seen. So the father gets all the shovel, takes off all his fine clothes and offers, offers their child a job in the stables, cleaning manure. And the child thinks, that's a job for me. That's something that I can do. What is wrong with me? And so we settle. We settle for, you know, good enough life. Relationships that aren't quite loving, but uh, superficial connections. And let me acknowledge that in, 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 a, in a sense, this is bourgeois suffering, right? There's many, many people in the world who don't have a choice about what their job is, what food they're going to eat. But suffering is still suffering. And systemic suffering, which we all create, comes from that same place, I think, from disconnection, from that very strong message that we receive to each their own. No one is going to take care of you, so you need to do that yourself. You know, the etymology of the word alone. Is, um, it's contracted from an old English phrase, elian, which means entirely alone, solitary and single. But the Middle English is more accurate because that comes from all un, alone, literally all one. Like that Dr. Broner's soap. Years ago in the Hebrides, I remember an old man who walked every morning on the gray stones to the shore of baying seals, who would press his hat to his chest in the blustering salt wind and say his prayer to the turbulent Jesus hidden in the water. And I think of the story of the storm and everyone waking and seeing the distant yet familiar figure far across the water calling to them. You know, and Dadaroshi had a koan in his collection, Koans of the Way of Reality, called Jesus Walks on Water. In this collection, he, he put it together early on when he was first teaching. And I just found, I have his notes for all of these koans, which is pretty wonderful. 
And, um, and he took these cons of the way of reality, he took from all these different sources. And so some of them were, were Christian. I think he was in the process, as I have been myself, of trying to figure out, how do I do this? How do I teach? How do I talk to people? How do I reach them? In this koan, his original commentary is very Christian, actually. He, he really gets in there in the story in the Bible and breaks it down and then compares it to Buddhism. Later, he really focused on the Buddhist teaching. But it was the, the, the best-selling talk that we had in our catalog. And I often thought, I think, I think people thought it was going to be something else <laughs> when they ordered it. There was one, one woman, slightly older woman, when MP3s first came out, she ordered it and she was so excited. And so we sent her the link. And she calls and she's like, well, where's the talk? And I said, well, we sent it to you. She's like, I thought it was a booklet. And so we had to explain to her what an MP3 was. It didn't work. She wasn't able to listen to it. She was very disappointed. And, you know, he likened it to, so there's that moment, right, where, where Jesus goes off um, to pray on his own. And then he's calling, you know, so then he goes into a boat. And there's this water, the water of this lake. And he calls the, his disciples to him. And, of course, you know, they, they won't come. And so he steps out onto the water to go to them. And then he says to Paul, come. And Paul does until he realizes he's standing on water. He doubts, he freaks out, and then he falls. And there are koans. There's at least a couple of koans, uh, a, a couple of stories, I'm sorry, in Buddhism that speak of monks also walking the water. One of them, the Buddha, was walking with a monk. And they get to the edge of a river, a very fast flowing river. And the monk, you know, hesitates for a moment, looks at the Buddha, and then he just steps on the, on the water and just walks on it as if it was land. And the Buddha calls out to him, you know, how long did you, did you practice to do that? And the monk says, well, 30 years. And the Buddha says, I can just get on the boat and cross it for, for a penny. Your little miracle is not what you think it is. The real miracle, right? A different koan says is chopping wood, carrying water. The real miracle is talking to your irrational teenager without losing it yourself. To create life work balance. How many people, how many people can say they have that? to not hand over your self-worth to your social media feed, to your coworkers, to your friends. The real miracle, I think, is to love yourself even though you think it's embarrassing to even try. To love yourself even though you might suspect you don't deserve it, given the things you've done. Sometimes it's necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness. It's from that other poem, St. Francis and the Sow, Galway Kennel. Sometimes we're fortunate enough to have someone teach us. I feel that I had that. 
You know, when my mother, we, we came home one day from school, my brother and I, and she said, so what are you learning in catechism? And we told her, I don't know what we told her, but she immediately said, I'm teaching you from now on. So every Wednesday afternoon, we would sit in our little apartment and we would read from an illustrated Bible and all of these stories. And this was one of her favorite ones. Also the multiplying of the loaves and the fish. But she liked the miracles. And I remember the wistfulness in her voice when she would tell this story in that moment where Jesus steps onto the water. And I would hear that as her saying, imagine, Imagine what is possible if this is possible. And then a few years later, when I was 13, I've shared this with some of you. She calls me aside and she says, Vanessa, you can do whatever you think is right. Even if I disagree with you. Teaching me to walk on water. And how we are all preparing for that abrupt waking and that calling and that moment we have to say yes, except it will not come so grandly, so biblically, but more subtly and intimately in the face of the one you know you have to love. Again, who do you think that is? And what is that moment when we have to say yes, purposefully, meaningfully, intentfully? You know, and that one we love, how old are they? How big are they? What age in your development? What is their other side? And they're standing back to back to us. Who is that? So that's why it takes 20 years for that child to shovel out that stable of all of that manure. Because in the beginning, it's too much, it's too soon, it's not for me. That's not me. How many times did you sit perhaps in a zendo or listen to a talk and think, they're talking about liberation, that's not for me. These teachings about being loving and kind and compassionate and patient, that, uh, not yet. I'm not ready for that. So after 20 years, the child says, well, maybe now, maybe now I can begin. And the father sensing this comes forward and says, okay, now you're going to take care of the books. You're going to take care of all of my business, my house. And he says something very interesting. He says, from now on, you and I will no longer behave as two persons. Isn't that an interesting thing to say? 
from now on, you and I will no longer behave as two persons, which of course they never were. But now the child is perhaps ready to see that. And if you think of what, we've, what we're told every day, you know, if you work hard, you pay your dues, then one day you can retire. One day you can do the thing that you really want to do. Like my friend realizing, uh-uh, I'm not waiting that long. I don't know if I have one day. So I'm going to do it now. It's, it's kind of like when people say to me, you know, I haven't seen the con. And I always say, well, how do you know? How do you know you don't know? I mean, really don't know. And then you'll be fine. Don't know. And then see what you see. Because if you, do, if you know or you don't know, there's just two possibilities. That's it. It's either this or it isn't. Get rid of that, infinite possibilities. I was listening to that talk on being with John O'Donohue. Maybe some of you listened to it. You know, if you have an Irish accent, or at least a British accent, you can pretty much say anything. And people will be right there with you. He had such a beautiful way of speaking. He could have just read a grocery list. But he said, at one point, uh, Krista Tippett asks him, why do you say that we're all artists? And he said, because we're always constructing our world. Right? We know this. We know this. But do we know it? Do we know that, as Donahue also said, time is the mother of presence, is the parent of presence? Think about this for a moment. We normally think, well, we're present to time in each moment or not, right? We're either present in this moment or we're not present. What if we reverse that? and say that it's time that makes our presence possible. Makes me think of Master Dogen's being time. So it's the moment that brings us into being. Which means in every moment, you have another opportunity to be born again. Quite literally. And that is why, I just made the connection, but I think that is why a bodhisattva never gives up. Because somebody could be in the throes of the darkest darkness. And it only takes a moment for that to shift. And another moment, and another moment, and another moment, granted. 
but it's just a moment. I used to say this to people all the time in the middle of Sishin. You may be exhausted. You may, you may be completely discouraged. You may be whatever it is that you are. It just takes a moment for that to shift. And it's true. So that when we finally step out of the boat, toward, uh, no. So that when we finally step out of the boat toward them, we find everything holds us and everything confirms our courage. And if you wanted to drown, you could, but you don't. Because finally, after all this struggle and all these years, you simply don't want to anymore. You've simply had enough of drowning. I've heard some of you say this to me in slightly different words. I don't want to drown anymore. I don't want to make do, get by. I don't want to settle. I think of how many of us never ask the questions that we really want to ask, but feel that we don't have time for, or feel just too scared to actually really get close. To decide that we don't want to drown anymore is to decide that we're not willing to rush you know, from one task to the next. To not make enough time for beauty, for goodness. And that is the moment in which the father hands out everything he has to the child. And the sutras, you know the sutras, they always describe, you know, these palaces. They're full, you know, bursting with jewels, gold and silver, lapis lazuli, and banners and perfumes. But to me, I mean, it's basically saying everything that is mine and everything that is beautiful and everything that will nourish you, I give to you. Because now the child is ready to take it everything that is joyful. And I've said before how I've, I've assigned to people and I've assigned to myself the practice of turning toward joy. Because it's actually not that easy. Right? We, we know pain, we know sorrow, we know heartbreak, and we kind of are comfortable in a painful sort of way within it. And so this takes courage as, as White himself says. How does he say it? So that when we finally step out of the boat, everything confirms our courage. Because if you wanted to drown, you could. We all know how to do that. We all know how to doubt, like Paul. You look down and you realize, oh my God, I'm standing on water. Psh you're in. 
What if you are that water? What if there's no way to tell what you're standing on? Because it fills everything. And so to not abandon yourself in all the many small and large ways that we do this day to day, to not abandon yourself, to stay present to yourself in the face of heartbreak is an act of love. From now on, you and I will no longer behave as two persons. The you and you and you and you in here. So, so much of practice is bringing all of those selves into presence, into time, and seeing that they're all one. And deciding that you will live with all of them and that you will love all of them. Remember, you don't have to like them. You don't have to agree with them. You just have to love them. And you want to live and you want to love and you will walk across any territory and any darkness however fluid and however dangerous. To take the one hand you know belongs in yours. And that danger, that unruliness, that wildness, it's part of it. It's part of it. And so don't let the, the stillness and the silence either deceive you or constrain you. I have. Don't let that happen to you. Because all of it needs to be brought in. And so in those times when it seems boring, when we think, is this all? Um, yes, this is all, but look closely. Look closely at that all, because where I'm standing, it's limbed with wonder. And so the miracle is not to walk on water, but to meet each day as your first, your only. And this is actually how the mind works. This is actually how things are. We just have to pay attention and get close. We have to step out of that boat and trust that everything will hold us. That other Rilke quote, you must realize that something is happening to you at, at those moments, especially at those moments of doubt, those moments of great doubt and confusion, realize that something is happening here, that life has not forgotten you, 
that it holds you in its hand and it will not let you fall. And if you did fall, where would you fall to anyway? Where everything that you step, everywhere that you step is ground. For more talks, to get more information about Zvise's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessasvisegoddard.org.